Welcome to the Power Hour. I'm Adrienne Herbert, wellness coach, international speaker and author. Each week I speak to a variety of guests from business founders to Olympic athletes, leading coaches, change makers and innovators to find out their daily habits, their rules to live by and what motivates them to get up out of bed each day. Personally, I am on a mission to encourage, motivate and inspire. So I hope that the Power Hour will help you to achieve your personal and professional goals. Welcome back to the Power Hour podcast. Today, I am joined by Dr. Emma Svanberg, aka Mumologist, an award-winning clinical psychologist, speaker and campaigner with expertise in attachment and perinatal psychology. Emma, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be here. Emma, there is so much that we could talk about. When I knew that I was going to be having this conversation with you today, my mind was overflowing with topics, <laughs> discussions, questions, because I myself, I'm a mother and a stepmother. I love children. I love parenting. I love everything that goes with it. So the chaos, the fun, and what I call the colorful life that is parenting. Mm. Uh, so if I go to a big family party or when I was at a wedding last year, I'm usually the one who's gathering the kids together. I'm lining them up. Let's play a game. Let's play pretend. My friends always joke. They're like, yes, Adrienne's here. She <laughs> is the one who can match the kids energy and she can actually tire them out. So yeah, they're always pleased to see me at a wedding. They're like, yes, she's going to take care of the kids. Um, but parenting, of course, also presents many challenges. So especially I think as you go through the different stages, so as your children get older, they're all so unique. They have different interests, different temperaments. They each respond to different things. And as parents, I think we play so many different roles. It's really, really complex. And of course, we have to consider our own childhoods and, and all of the things that have led us to becoming the people that we are. So so complex, as I said, so much to talk about. So before we dive into all of my questions, I'd really love to start by hearing from you about your journey and the work that you do. So could you tell us, yeah, what led you into doing the work that you do today with parents? Yes, I'd love to tell you about that because there's quite a lot about my own childhood in that story. Um, my father's also a clinical psychologist and he got really interested in attachment and infant mental health when I was in my early teens. So I was really privileged, which I sort of didn't quite realise at the time, to hear lots of really interesting conversations between him and his colleagues. We had people who were you know, probably sort of celebrities in the attachment world come and stay with us. So I had lots of really interesting dinner table conversations, you know, just at a time when you're in your teenage years where you're really soaking up information and thinking about the world and thinking about kind of how things operate and who you are. So that was how I became interested in attachment in the first place and psychology. I was very determined to not be a psychologist. <laughs> so I actually started off doing an English degree. And then just as I went through my degree, I, I actually was getting more and more interested. I realized that so much of the things that I was interested in were all about human relationships. So I switched my degree. I then went, had a gap year, went to India, did some psychology work in a daycare center, just to really make sure that that was what I wanted to do. And in the end, I've kind of really pulled together a few of my different interests in my work. So I work a lot around attachment and attachment trauma, but I also work with looking at gender equality in parental relationships and thinking about 
the sort of women's expectations or the expectations that have been placed on mothers. So I, I suppose in some ways my work is a kind of combination of my two big interests, which are really feminism and gender equality and attachment and trauma. So very small topics, but <laughs> very complex, as you said though, at yeah. the beginning. And, and in many ways, you know, the work that I do is a combination of, of all of those different things alongside lots of other interests too. Wow. Yeah, it's fascinating. And also, I think all those intersections, you know, impact so many different people. So the focus of this conversation, people might think, well, maybe if, if they're parents, then of course, this might start there. If they're not parents, then actually, yeah, all of those things that you said, relationships, attachment, gender roles, like all of these things, I think, uh, yeah, impact all of us. So maybe we mm. could start with attachment, actually. Could you explain to any of the listeners who perhaps haven't heard of attachment in the context of relationships, what that mm -hmm. is all about? Um, I can. I think of attachment almost like a dance. I think it's it can seem really complex when we're thinking about patterns or how we interact, but actually it's almost like these steps that we learn in our very early relationships. And there are kind of four main kinds of attachment, although there's a lot of different theorists that are out there that talk about a much more complex idea of what attachment relationships are. The vast majority of people are securely attached. So around the world, that's over 60% of people are securely attached. And essentially what that means is that we are in a really lovely steady dance. So I think of it almost like a waltz. Everyone knows what their steps are. It's quite predictable. You know, there might be times where we trip over each other's feet sometimes, but we always have something quite steady and regular to come back to. The really important thing about attachment that often isn't spoken about, because we tend to think about our own attachment, how we are attached to people. But actually, attachment itself is a relationship. It's about how we exist in our relationship with other people. So it's not just about how we are in our relationships, but also about what we expect from the other person in our relationship. So mm. in a secure attachment, we would expect that somebody would be fairly consistently there for us, fairly available to us, emotionally connected some of the time, not all of the time. And we also have that understanding when we're securely attached that if somebody's not consistently there for us, then it's probably not our fault. You know, there might be something going on for them. And as we get older with secure attachment, if we're not receiving what we need from somebody that we're asking for it from, what we tend to do is we'll just go and find somebody else who's able to provide that for us. So as you can imagine, people who have that kind of steady waltz-like attachment dance tend to be pretty robust, secure, safe people who feel quite comfortable in themselves the majority of the time. Mm -hmm. Then you have what is called an avoidant attachment, which um, in my book, Parenting for Humans, I describe that as a little bit like an Irish dance where things look kind of quite still and straight on the surface, but underneath kind of when you look below the waist things are quite frantic sometimes and working very hard in order to keep that very straight appearance going avoidant attachment is is happens when we don't have a understanding that a caregiver will consistently respond to us so we kind of have to learn to rely on ourselves we learn to push our feelings down to suppress them but what research shows is that actually we might still be feeling lots of those feelings. We're just not showing them on the outside. Mm. The third dance is one that I think of as a very passionate dance. It's like an Argentine tango. It's one where sometimes people are very close together and they're very passionate and, you know, cheeks pressed to each other. And it can look very, um, yeah, very connected. 
but then the next moment you know you're on opposite sides of the dance floor and you don't quite know what's happened um what that would look like in a, a parenting relationship is something where sometimes if a child cries or asks for a need to be met that need will be met sometimes it might be met with anger or frustration at other times it might not be met at all so that child kind of grows up not quite knowing what to expect from their caregiver, but because they're not necessarily scared of their caregiver and they know that they can be consistently there at times, what they tend to do is escalate their request. So that might be children who look like they've got challenging behaviour, who tantrum quite a lot, for example. But part of that is that they've learnt that actually if I just shout really loudly, then it, I'm, more, I'm more likely that somebody's going to come and respond to me. And what's that third one? Sorry, so secure, avoidant, and well, it, that, it's quite interesting because it's got lots of different. It's got lots of different names, but anxious or ambivalent attachment is is how that tends to be referred to. Mm-hmm. And ambivalence, quite an interesting word, right? Because it's that sort of slight ambivalence about is this person going to be here or are they not? I don't quite know where I stand. And um, and then generally speaking, we would talk about a fourth attachment. This is the one that gets really complicated. That has been called disorganized attachment. But one researcher, Patricia Crittenden, talked about that actually children who have disorganised attachment relationships are actually very, very organised because they adapt to what can be very chaotic environments. So that is usually what happens when you have a caregiver who's either frightened themselves, so perhaps there's lots of unresolved trauma in their life, or they can be quite frightening, so a scary parent or caregiver. And children will then, you know, adapt their steps. So sometimes it might look smooth, sometimes it might look really messy. Occasionally people might fall over and it might look really chaotic. Um, but what we know about disorganised attachment patterns are that actually in those kind of relationships, children are working very, very hard in order to be able to keep themselves feeling as safe and secure as they possibly can within those circumstances. So those are the kind of four main patterns or dances What's really interesting about attachment is that we can see that as like steps that are quite regular that we learn in our lives, right? They're familiar dances that we get into. What's quite tricky is that then when we grow up, we might try and do those dances with other people too, and other people might not understand those dance steps. So either we can get into a bit of conflict about that, or what we often do is that we actually force people to do our dance with us because that's what feels familiar and infamiliarity is what how we feel safe and comfortable even if kind of in the longer term actually it doesn't feel like a very comfortable dance for us does that make sense yeah it does there's so much yeah it's fascinating I mean attachment is you know it's like you know it was first spoken about in the 1940s and we know so much about attachment since then it's been kind of backed up in, t- in terms of global research, you know, there are these key sort of attachment concepts that that are globally relevant. And we also now understand attachment in terms of brain development, in terms of different relationships. So in the past, we've tended to talk about attachment between a mother and a baby. Actually, really, what we now know is that attachment forms in attachment networks. So we might have different kinds of relationship patterns or dances with other people in our lives, too. So it's really yeah. complex. It's a very rich, fascinating area of research. Yeah, that's what I was thinking about as you were describing those. I was thinking about, of course, you know, reflecting on my own childhood and the relationship, relationships between my 
mother and father and myself. And actually, even those can be very different. So you could have, you know, one potentially right attachment style with one parent and then maybe a different parent or caregiver gives you a different style. And I think that web is really interesting. And whenever yeah. I've read books about attachment, it's often been relating to romantic relationships. But I think right. it's very interesting for us to think about, yeah, ourselves as parents. And, and it's always a tricky one, right? Because as parents, you're constantly, I think, challenging yourself to think, am I doing enough? Am I not doing enough? Am I pushing too much? Should I push more? Am I being enough of this or enough of that? And I think that's what for so many parents, whatever age and stage your children are at, you love them. You want to do what's best for them. You want to also have I suppose uh, an element of compassion for yourself and that you're human yeah. being and that you're imperfect and that you're, you're going to make mistakes. You're not going to be perfect, but it is, yeah, as you say, this fascinating web. And I think with that in mind, as a clinical psychologist with two decades of experience, what are, I suppose, some of the biggest changes that you've seen in that time and all that work that you've done? So 20 years ago, were parents oh, facing no. the same, was it typically the same things as you're seeing today or, or has it changed quite dramatically? I love, love this question because things have changed to me, I think, quite dramatically. There are definitely these core challenges that parents have that they have always had, right? So even if we're thinking about attachment, you know, how do I... How do I reconcile the kind of experiences that I had growing up? What do I want to repeat for my children? What do I want to do differently? How do I resolve that with a partner who might have quite a different attitude to me? How do I parent in a community or in the world as it is now? Those are, you know, kind of concepts or questions or challenges that have been around for parents forever and ever. I think that the context in which we are parenting has changed so much. So when I first started working with parents, the really popular kind of parenting approaches were all very behavioral. Mm. So thinking about people like Gina Ford, you know, there's lots of things about reward charts or controlled crying. It was very much about parent-led parenting. And there was this kind of expectation that parents will do something and they're the ones who are kind of in charge and a child will respond. And, you know, if it wasn't working that way, then you needed to look for behavioral rewards or punishments in order to be able to kind of train your baby or child to be this person that you wanted them to be. So quite outcomes focused in the 80s and 90s, very much around success, achievement, those sort of, you know, kind of goals that were much more around culturally at that time. That's why we're all obsessed, hyper overachievers now. Yeah, all well, overachievers. Yeah, actually, overachievers. <laughs> that's our generation. Yeah. But the, yeah. you know, now I think what's really shifted is, first of all, there's much more understanding of concepts like attachment. You know, these are concepts that have come out into our mainstream understanding, and also the impact on brain development. Right. So we know now that. There, there can be a kind of longer term impact on children who are anxiously attached, for example, or insecurely attached in any way. I will say that that is something that people can really panic about, but actually our brains are plastic and change forever. So mm. all of these things are repairable, all of these things we can change. So I think sometimes people can feel that so much is at stake that they almost don't know where to go because you know they're so kind of set on getting it right, like you said at the beginning. I think in some ways that information has been incredibly helpful because we should now really appreciate the importance of the work that parents do. However, all of that information hasn't translated into more support and valuing of parenting. 
Mm. If anything, actually, parents are much less supported these days in terms of state support, healthcare support, community support. So parents are more often parenting in isolation. And then there's been such a growth of information, you know, in terms of social media, books, podcasts, articles. What I find in a lot of the people that I speak to nowadays is that they have their those kind of core parenting challenges that I mentioned earlier. But then they also have this added anxiety around how do I get this right? You know, how do I do this in the best possible way so that my child grows up happy and healthy? But actually, the flip side of that for people is often the question of have I broken them already? You know, have I already done ir- irreparable damage and have I already messed up this whole parenting thing? And I think Gosh, that yeah. often, you know, that's because information is often presented in quite all or nothing ways. Increasingly, there are things like here are five top tips or things that you must never say to your children. <laughs> and I think that often what can, people can find is that they feel quite paralysed by that in the end. You know, when we have so much information available to us, we go into a sort of freeze. It's very hard to choose what is the kind of information that is going to fit for me and my family in our unique set of circumstances. Yeah, it is so unique. That's the thing that I think is missing, as you said, from these top five tips or or even, yeah, this idea that one one thing is going to work for one child or for one family when in reality we know as soon as you have maybe even one child or more you know that that is just not the case they're so so different and I thought it was very interesting when you talked about the parent-led parenting and the kind of books and reward charts and things and behavior and discipline and if I feel like and my son's only he's going to be 12 soon. So it's only 12 years that I've been a parent, but I feel like a lot of the conversation is almost pendulumed. We like to have extremes, don't we? It's like pendulum to all the way to the other extreme. So as you said, like things you must never say or never do. And I feel like some friends and some parents that I know are almost afraid now to say no or to have discipline or to have reward charts or because as you said it's like am I going to mess up my child by giving them these things but my somewhat maybe unpopular opinion is that we all need left and right limits and that all children need whether you call it rules whether you call it guidelines whether you call it boundaries whatever word you choose to use my experience with my nieces my nephews my cousins my children is that they need left and right limits and even my uh, ex-husband who's a teacher you know he's been a teacher for 18 years and this idea that we can't you know we've got to have a fear around telling a three-year-old no or telling a four-year-old or a 10-year-old like this behavior is um this is, you know, behavior that I am not going to accept or tolerate. And this is why I think mm. it has almost become, yeah, parents are almost afraid, I think now to, to do it wrong and to do anything and to, yeah, to be seen as being strict or being, you know, hard on them or punishing them because you're going to showcase that to them that you're, I don't know, you don't love them or that they've, you know, you're going to damage them forever. So how mm. can we, I guess, yeah. How can we figure out that dance to say, actually, yes, if we agree, they need left and right limits. But we don't want to, of course, yeah, go maybe back to this kind of like old school way. Yeah. How can people navigate that? What's the what's the balance? Right. Where do we find the balance? And I think what you said there about the pendulum is really relevant because you've mentioned earlier, you know, when we're talking about 80s and 90s high achievers, I think that often we've taken that high achievement and put it into our parenting. So Mm -hmm. we tend to be you know, lots of the parents that I speak to tend to be quite research heavy. They'll go off and they'll research what is the kind of best way, in inverted commas, to parent a child and what are the what are the ways that I can parent this child that will have the best longer term outcomes for them. 
So we can almost go into parenting as a bit of a project. And we can also think about it as something that, you know, is a kind of success or failure experiment. Mm. And what we lose or what we lose sight of when we think of it in that way is that essentially we are testing ourselves. You know, we become part of an experiment that is all about our parenting strategies, techniques, what we say, what we do. And actually what we forget about is that where, where does that place our child? Our child then becomes our outcome. Gosh, yeah. And if they have a bad day, then our experiment is a failure. And, you know, it all becomes about doing, right? Like, how are we going to do this parenting thing? Where parenting is about a relationship. It's about how do we connect with another human being? And when we're so focused on doing, getting it right, doing it the right way, then actually it becomes much harder to just pause and connect with this human being who is in front of us. Oh, it's so powerful then, when you sorry so powerful when you say when you say it that way as in yeah parents expecting their child to be the outcome of their inputs and that is yeah, yeah totally I mean, unconsciously right totally unconsciously and this is not something that people kind of consciously mean to do but I think that a lot of the way that we talk about parenting almost sets it up in that way so mm. we end up feeling at the end of the day was it a successful day because you know my child responded really well to my parenting intervention rather than was that a successful day because actually I feel really good and we connected with each other and we had a laugh, you know, or that whatever that success might look like for you. I think that part of that is a kind of historical construct or a historical, like you said, pendulum swing, because if in the 80s and 90s, the predominant parenting style was something that was quite authoritarian, so something that was more parent-led, you know, kind of going to put my foot down, children should be seen and not heard, all of those kind of messages that were much more prevalent in those days. What we know from attachment research is that the impact of that is more likely to be a kind of insecure attachment, so an avoidant or an anxious attachment. And what we then tend to do is that we do pendulum swing to the opposite. Mm. And eventually, you know, over generations, we end up getting somewhere that is probably secure. So, generationally you know this that pendulum swing will get shorter and shorter until you know we end up somewhere that feels kind of safe comfortable and secure Mm. but it feels like that is almost happening on a generational level so if the majority of people feel like they were brought up in in more of a kind of avoidant attachment which is much more common in the UK in the 80s and 90s people really don't want to replicate that feeling that they had when they were younger knowing what it felt like to be shouted at or not to be listened to or to be sent to your room, not to be recognised as a person, which is kind of mm. a, the consequence of that, then we overcompensate by thinking, I am going to do everything in my power to make sure that this child feels heard, seen, understood, cared for, nurtured. And then, of course, where we fall into problems is in the overcompensation is that what we then lose is those kind of boundaries or like you said, something to kind of push against at the end of that spectrum, which children do need, you know, children do need, we all need structure. We all need to know what's expected of us. It can be really reassuring. And Mm. for a lot of children that, you know, there is then that kind of question of, well, you know, who's in charge then if nobody's telling me what is okay for me to do or not to do. It's Mm. something that I hear a lot from parents who've been really invested in, Um, you know, kind of gentle parenting, that kind of very tuned in parenting that is much more popular. It's like a real massive TikTok trend at the moment. 
that actually what can feel really tricky, you know, nurture and care can feel easy, but setting boundaries as children become toddlers or as they grow up, you know, how do I get that balance right between saying no and asserting my own authority in my parenting relationship, but while still kind of honouring the needs and opinion of this child too. And that is where collaboration comes in, right? Because we can do that. That would be that kind of authoritative parenting that we are aspiring to often, which we know is kind of linked to that more secure attachment pattern. But it's a very hard balance to get right. And I think when we're we're so invested in learning and in doing parenting in particular ways, that can feel much more complicated than it actually is when we're focusing just on the relationship. Yeah. And this, I suppose what I'm thinking as well, even when you said gentle parenting, I know friends that would laugh, they would laugh out loud because we, you know, culture plays such a role as well, doesn't it? And so for some of my friends, whether they've got African parents, Jamaican parents, as much as they might joke about, you know, some of the strict rules around, uh, you know, having to make your bed and having to cook dinner when you're like 10 years old, they also joke at the fact that this idea of gentle parenting, like my friend often says, you know, she's got African parents, lots of African friends. And she actually says, if you want to do gentle parenting, she's like, cool I'm happy for you do it in your own house because she's like if you bring your kids to like a social event and this idea of gentle parenting like we said not I'm not saying that that's what it is but the extreme of it is that yeah exactly letting them be seen letting them be heard never really telling them no never kind of letting yeah setting any kind of parameters around their behavior and she jokes because she's like I don't want to be around people who who do gentle parenting because their kids just rule the, the everything right. and right. it's um yeah and I don't you know say I don't mean to diminish it or make a joke but I think it is yeah there's so many things that influence whether it is culture whether it is even just even just the child themselves their temperament some children respond so differently to the same thing that for some people they might do gentle parenting and their child is just an absolute breeze absolute dream easy going like I mean I didn't do the gentle parenting thing but my son who's almost 12 he is the most laid back human and he does not you know this thing again people want to take pride or credit for their children I did not he's it's not for me at all. You know, I've always been <laughs> outgoing. I've always been confident. I've always been competitive. I've always been, you know, naturally I would fall more into like leadership. He is the opposite of that in so many ways. He will never volunteer to lead. He's happy for others to lead. He is a mm. diplomat. He's a negotiator. He is so laid back. You could literally say to my son, Jude, Jude, the house is on fire. And if he was reading a book, he'd look up and go, oh, okay like as if you know what do you what do you want me to do should I should I leave like he's so chill and again yeah he's so wonderful but then it also again that has its challenges you know no sense of urgency in life like has challenges um but we laugh because you know we're so different and we really do laugh about it you know the other I I joke with him about when I was his age you know I could cook a roast dinner I could do the washing I could do all these things I was so capable you know I had younger siblings I used to change nappies put them to bed he literally the other day asked me if the milk was out of date and I asked him to smell it to see and he sniffed the plastic bottle the actual <laughs> bottle the outside and honestly we just burst out laughing because I was like Jude what are you doing take off the lid and smell the like it's that kind of thing where I'm thinking I could cook a roast dinner at 12 and this boy I'm just thinking what is going to happen but we have to laugh at the fact that he is exactly who he is. And of course, yeah. environment and, you know, I'm sure, you know, the books that we've read or the places that we've been to, there's some influence. However, I strongly believe that the core essence like the, of the, who the human being is, is so much of that is just who they are. And we just yeah. have to 
accept it, work with it, try to, I guess, enjoy it, bring out the best, whatever, but not kind of think, well, this is a result or an outcome of my inputs, because personally, I, I my experience, it hasn't been that at all. And, and often I think we can get into that as parents where we have that sudden realisation, right, of this thing that I've been doing or this kind of idea that I have of my child maybe wasn't true because we see them as almost an extent or we can see them as an extension of ourselves. But exactly like you say, you know, children come into the world, they are influenced by so many different things. You know, that might be their genes, it might be their womb environment, you know, it might also be their temperament and there's lots in there about you know, kind of genetic um, parts of temperament too. When we were talking earlier about parenting strategies and the kind of things that we might choose or the way that we might choose to respond to our children, one of the concepts that I think is really useful to know about is just that idea of goodness of fit. So mm. in temperament terms, you know, we, we know that people are kind of born with, they just show up in different ways, right? There are parts of our personality that are just always there. And we can either try and shift them or mould them in order to be able to fit into something that feels more acceptable or they can be accepted as they are. And then as exactly as you said, you know, we kind of allow that part to flourish or to thrive when we accept it and embrace it. Often where people can fall into difficulty is that we, you know, if we have a child who is very, very different to us, but we find that difficult to accept, then we can kind of come up against each other in friction. Um, when we are different, but we accept that difference, then again, that kind of goodness of fit is there. It's a bit easier. So we know how to get along with each other. We can also have a really easy fit where we're very temperamentally similar. And that is one part of parenting that we don't often talk about. You know, how, how easy do I find this baby or child? You know, how much do mm. I understand them because I relate to them or, you know, I just get I just get who they are because actually lots of the things that they do remind me of who I am. Or like you're talking about, actually, this is a very different child, but I'm quite, you know, curious about these differences and, and obviously really accepting of those differences in the way that you've spoken about him. So we don't have to be the same, but we do need mm. to understand who we both are in those relationships if we're going to be able to get along and and not kind of bump up against each other with friction all the time yeah I really like that goodness of fit that's fantastic and you know I'd also like to say for any listeners because I'm certainly not a perfect parent if such a thing exists and I think when you talked then about you know how it can be challenging when they're not the same as you I think potentially maybe how that would come up for me is as I said I've always been competitive and I've always been not in a sense necessarily about like you have to be the best or you have to beat other people but just competitive to kind of you know do the best that you can so whether that's you know if that's a running race you it's a race you're trying to come first you know it's because you just sell it back I think it previously if I'd yeah in sporting things or you know just anything where I'd be like it doesn't matter about being the best but you've got to give your best but when someone's so laid back that they're kind of just like yeah you know, sure, whatever. It can be frustrating because you're thinking they're not going to fulfill their potential or they're not going to, you know, and maybe that's okay. Maybe they're not bothered about their potential. <laughs> so it's it's interesting again how, yeah, I think it's a constant, constant journey of, of learning and different ages will throw up different things. Is, but something I'd yeah. love to, something I'd love to hear about is some some kind of hows because this show you know I always want to give people like practical takeaways mm -hmm. things they can think about things they can actually do so the how is really important to me and I read I think it was in the press release about the book I read a line that said 
this book, your book, we need to talk all about the book and the title of the book and, and parenting for humans and why you wrote it. But this one line, I really wanted to talk to you. It said, this book helps them to find, helps parents to find the things that make parenting a joy. Now mm -hmm. I circled and highlighted this word joy because joy is something that I prioritize in life. And I think is, is something I want to talk to more people about. And so as we've discussed, a lot of the parenting books that we might've seen before might talk about how to discipline, how to educate, how to prepare your kids to be adults and all these things, but they might not focus on how to enjoy parenting mm -hmm. and how to allow your kids to enjoy being kids because they're not adults right now. They will be one day, but right now mm. they are kids. And I think this element of joyfulness and not to say that it will always be easy or that there won't be, yeah, very difficult, challenging times or sleep deprived times or behavioral times, but the joy part I think is so often overlooked and so often we kind of, yeah, whether we're focusing on academic results or whether we're focusing on behavior, it's just this idea that joy is just like, okay, that saved for maybe birthdays or weekends. But I'd love yeah. to talk to you about why as parents, we need to maybe focus more on joy, on enjoying parenting and allowing our kids to enjoy being themselves. Yes. Oh, where do I begin? <laughs> <laughs> I think first of all, you know, it goes back to what we were talking about before that when we're focused on parenting as a kind of sign of achievement or success, it's really hard to make space for joy because it's all about the doing and it's not just about the being together. And that's where we find joy in each other, in all of our relationships, right? Like not just in our parenting relationships, it's those moments of connection where we're like, oh, we're together. And I feel like we're aligned and we're getting on and this is nice. You know, it doesn't have to be, you know, look really joyful on the outside, but we can have that experience of joy and pleasure in our bodies because we feel connected to another human being. That's really what being human is all about, right? It's about connecting with other human beings. We are relational creatures. We love connecting with each other on our own terms and in our own ways, but absolutely connection is something that keeps us well and thriving. So I think the first thing would be just kind of letting, finding ways to let go of that sense that it has to be about achievement or success or doing and focusing much more on what are the things that we just enjoy like how how do we enjoy being together what are the things that we find pleasure in that we shared these shared experiences and they don't have to be big and i think this is one of those things that social media and our kind of social pressures can really get in the way of because we might think of joy in parenting as being like a trip to disneyland or an activity that we go out and do together but actually, when you ask children about what they enjoy, it's going and looking at a leaf in a park for as long as mm. they are allowed to. You know, actually having the permission to just take the world at their pace. It might be sitting, having a hot chocolate and watching a film together. You know, it's these often very small moments of connection that we can really overlook as parents because they don't meet our expectations of what good parenting looks like. I think also there is something about really understanding children, which is what you talked about, because one of the one of the things that I talk about a lot in my work and also in the book is this idea that we can't really enjoy our parenting until we understand ourselves. And in some ways, the reason for that is because if we don't understand ourselves, 
we can often tend to look at our children through the lens of our own experience. So mm. when they are doing something, we're relating it to our experience rather than really being able to see what it is and how it's affecting them. It means that there's a kind of disconnect that can be there all the time because we're seeing them through our eyes rather than really hearing about their own experience. And part of a child's experience, particularly at the moment, is growing up in a very unfriendly world, a world that is very unfriendly to children and families, and the impact of that on them. And I think that we're really seeing the impact on children of the stress of the last few years with the pandemic, mm. with families being under so much pressure. You know, there are lots of children at the moment who are saying, actually, this has been really hard for me and they're showing it in various different ways, you know, kind of either yeah. more internally as anxiety or externally as what might look like challenging behaviour. Children do have this natural spark. You know, they come so vibrant into the world and they are so curious and so magical. You know, children in themselves are such magical creatures. The way that they think, their imaginations, the way that they see the world... And what we tend to do in our society and culture is that very early on, we start to kind of mould them to fit our expectations of what children should be. You said something earlier on about them almost being like little adults. If we're able to tune into what really is a magical way of thinking, it can bring us so much joy too. But it's really not in keeping with what other people might expect from us as grown-ups. So it's really interesting what you said at the beginning, right, about how you really enjoy playing. Lots of adults find play so difficult. But when we're able to get over our kind of self-consciousness, and it might not be play, you know, kind of traditionally what we might see as play. It might be leading a child in something that feels playful to you or just tuning into what they want to do. But connecting mm -hmm. with them on that kind of imagination level can really also allow us to experience pleasure in entering their world and not always bringing them into our world. Well, that, yes, that would be exactly what I was thinking when you said that about people find play difficult. And I think that, it, I personally, I think that become that comes when they want to lead, as you said. So I've got to come up with an idea or I've got to come up with a game or I've got to engage the children and, and entertain them when actually, I think it's the other way around for me. I think if you are curious and you just ask them questions, if you ask a child a question, every single child is going to give you a different answer. And then you just ask them another question and another question. And before you, you let them lead actually like allow them to lead and I feel like that's when you go into their world and they want to spend more time with you they want to be around you you know they want to because it's someone who's giving going into their world who's interested in whatever it is they're talking about whether they're telling you like you said about you know the leaves that they're trying to make into a potion or whether it's about I, I don't know a, a pretend game because they're telling you about this character from a book or if it's just things that you might not enjoy at all I've, I've talked about this before my son is really into wwe wrestling right now mm -hmm. now i can tell you of all the phases and stages that he's been interested in whether it was dinosaurs whether it was space whether it was football star wars i could kind of get on board with most of them wwe wrestling does not <laughs> interest me at all and when you said about the small moments of connection we can have a weekend where I might think, oh yeah, we've done all these great things. Maybe we've been to a museum in London. We've been to a restaurant. We've done all these things. And I can literally say to Jude at the end of the weekend, 
what did you, you know, what did you enjoy most about this weekend or what you're looking forward to or whatever? And his answer is typically like, oh, it was really great when we sat and read that WWE comic or, yeah. you know, and something that we did together, but it's, it's his world, it's WWE. And yeah. he's telling me about, you know, this WrestleMania and this champion that's coming, come back. And I'm literally like, and I go for it, but go for it. You know, I don't, I don't love it. I'm not going to lie and say like, oh, I can't wait to watch SmackDown highlights. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to do it, but I do it anyway, because if that's 20 minutes or if it's 30 minutes or if it's whatever, that is time in his world. So whatever that is for you, for your child, whatever age and stage, if you find play difficult, don't think about his play, but just think about what are they into? Is it dinosaurs? Is it space? Is it, uh, I don't know, drawing? Is it music? And just ask some questions and let, just go into their world and spend a bit of time there. And yeah, just if you can, oh, even yeah. if it's five minutes, you'll see it's so different to when you're saying, I really want us to do this puzzle together or let's yeah. go outside and play football and do something that's activity because often it's things we want them to do yeah. and they might not be interested in those things at all. And, and also, you know, it's about, it is about curiosity, right? Because what you're talking about there is actually, this is something that does not have any, you know, does not light my fire one bit, but actually <laughs> seeing it, lighting his fire you know kind of go, like being able to see his joy in it is what it offers him you know so it doesn't you don't have to be interested you can even say like this is really not my bag but I'm interested in hearing about why you find it so interesting because actually that's kind of the, that's really what we build our relationships on right it's those shared connections and we know what that feels like as adults when somebody is really interested in what we've got to say. You know, if mm. I start talk to you about psychology, right, obviously that's something that I'm very interested in, and you were then to ask me loads of questions, you know, that it really sparks that kind of, yeah, shared curiosity, shared interest, but also that feeling of, oh, you know, you're, you're actually interested in what I've got to say. You know, you kind of really want to hear from me. That might make me feel cared for, right? It's not necessarily about acts of care, it's also just curiosity and, and having that kind of shared interest in something. And I think, you know, what can really get in the way, especially as parents or adults generally when we're talking to children, is that it goes against all of our stories about what it is to be a good, sensible adult. So mm. you have to come up against that part of you that might feel really self-conscious because actually maybe there is a bit of you that can really tune into how you felt as a child that maybe is very curious about play is quite happy to get down on the floor and get mucky for example and you know get into a leaf pile or whatever it might be but then there's also that kind of grown-up part of you going oh but what are other people going to think or what if I kind of get this wrong or you know actually I'm going to make my clothes really mucky or whatever it might be you know these kind of stories or narratives or expectations that can get in the way of connecting not just with our children, but with other people too, you know, that shows up for people all the time that, you know, that kind of longing within us to connect on a human to human level, but then we can put lots of barriers or obstacles in the way because it might not fit with what we feel people are expecting of us or our kind yeah. of internalised expectations that we've grown up with, even if there's nobody else actually around. 
Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I think all of those things, of course, are really true. And I think one more thing to add maybe to that as well, if I think about some of my parenting friends and the conversations we've had over the years is that also there's so much to do as a parent so sometimes my friends will say to me you know what it's not that I don't want to play or I don't want to watch the Star Wars or I don't want to go in the garden and get messy it's not that but they're just like you know what I'm so overwhelmed with so much to do because I have a full-time job and I have to you know wash the football kit and I've got to feed the dog and I've got to do all these other things that actually play comes so far down on the list and they also they almost like yeah feel guilty about that or berate themselves because they're like oh you know what actually I don't know the last time I sat and read for an hour with my kids because I'm too busy I've got all this other stuff to do so yeah I think it's also important for parents to acknowledge that maybe the modern world maybe their lifestyle maybe whatever reason it is you know maybe solo parents there's so many things that you have to do as a human being and a parent and and I think that yeah can be quite um I think for people to kind of remember that as well so they don't feel so much guilt if they're if they're not you know building a fort every night out of sheets because let's be honest like often there's all those other things to do yes but that but again there is a kind of expectation there right that can creep in about what what it would look like to be connected to a child and you know kind of spending an hour building a fort every night because it it, (laughs) it can just be moments right it can literally just be moments of connection just being curious and being you know kind of interested in each other and you know absolutely what you say is so true because i think that one of the we talked about the context you know over the last 20 years one of the things that's changed massively since we were children ourselves certainly since our grandparents had children is that it is much more common now for both parents if there are two parents in the home both parents to be working it's much more common for people to be raising children on their own it's also very expensive to raise children and there's very little family and community support around that. So all of that pressure on us as adults can obviously cause huge obstacles, not just in our ability to be present with children, but also our stress. People are very stressed and stress obviously gets in the way of us connecting with all of our relationships with other people because we are in that very doing state. You know, We end up in survival mode we're kind of just thinking, we're often on autopilot, right? What do I need to do next in order to be able to get through this day? Yeah. One of the things that I think, you know, you talked about being a difference in your own childhood is that we can also bring our children in to do some of those jobs with us. We might not do that when we're in quite a stressed out state because it can feel like it's going to take a lot longer and we just want to get through it quickly because there's so much to do. Oh, I'll be honest with you. That was, I'll be honest with you. Mine was due to necessity. I feel like, you know, my mum was a solo, she was a single parent. She was definitely stressed and tired and did not have the capacity for, yeah, I guess these moments of connection and and joy and play and reading. It was, there was no time for that because she was a single parent in a low income, uh, you know, salary with four kids. So yeah, mine came out of necessity because it was like, right, these jobs have got to be done. You've got to cook the dinner. The washing needs to be done. You know, your brother needs to go to bed. So I definitely took on, I think probably a more parental role because I had to but I agree I think bringing kids in to say you know what there's all these things that need to be done and it's not always fun like I try and do that now it's not always fun to have to clean out the guinea pig cage or wash the car or do the laundry but yeah I think bringing them in to see actually the work that you're doing like it is work isn't it like the household things like it's work I think bringing them into that and saying actually these things have to be done so come and help Yes, and that is life too, right? And I think you said something earlier about we can often see the kind of 
connection or, or fun that we have with our children as being something that happens at the weekends or on holidays. But yeah. this is life. You know, we are living life with them 24-7. So how do we also allow them to come into our world and how do we invite them in in a way that often those are the com- times that we can have the best conversations with our kids, especially kids of your age, where you're side by side, you know, chopping vegetables together or you're putting a wash on together or you're hanging up laundry together. That's where you yeah. can get into that kind of slightly free-flowing, let's just have a chat about what's on our minds without any pressure mm. to do that. So it is yeah. a, And then they will moan and they will... And they will moan and they will complain. I was going to say, I feel that's where I go into like, like, of course, cliche lecturing mother. But yeah, I I had uh, to take my son in the other day to the supermarket. He said, oh, can I wait in the car? And I said, no, you can come, you can help, you know, because I want him to sit in. It's like, it takes effort and energy to go and buy the food, pack up the bags, carry them to the car. I was like, you can help. And you kind of think, you know, the way you're describing it now is like these moments of sharing. I don't know, you're like chopping the vegetable, like it's going to be fun. They're going to, it's not going to be fun. They're going to moan and they're going to complain. But I think just doing it anyway, I hope that maybe there's a bit of a lesson in there, you know, around, I don't know, contribution and work ethic. Yes, yes. And how do we resolve those conflicts, right, without you know it having to become a really big conversation but how do we resolve a conflict where we have different needs or different wishes and actually I complain in my own head when I've got to do something that I don't really want to do (laughs) but you know we then have that internalized voice of you know we find ways to make it feel bearable or or find ways Mm. to make it to make it feel something that we can do and actually so much of what we're doing as parents is giving those giving our children those messages that they are then going to internalize in their adult life so yes, it's hard, but we can do it together. Or yeah, I know it's boring, but let's crack on and we can have a chat while we're doing it, whatever it might be. You know, something that allows the difficult or the struggle to be there, but we can still do it. And you know, and we're gonna we're gonna do that together because those are all of the voices that you know we use ourselves as adults that can tell us to kind of get on with something, or that we can do something even when it feels hard or boring or difficult. Yeah. Actually, what's difficult is that when those voices are kind of critical, then that can be that, you know, we're doing it out of a fear of criticism. One of those things that we can think about when we are trying to encourage our children to do things that they might not want to do is how do we want them to be speaking to themselves as they grow up? So it might be, you know, firmness plus encouragement, for example. Yeah, I love this. Oh, this is fascinating. Honestly, I feel like we're going to have to do a part two um, and maybe especially when we get into the teenage years. Oh my gosh, we're going to have to do definitely another another episode oh, all okay. about that. Oh, that's <laughs> hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Yeah, um, but for today, as we don't sadly have much more time, and I really want to talk to you about the Power Hour, which is the first hour of every day. 
Now, Emma, I know that you're a parent, you have two children. And so for a lot of parents, when they hear the concept of the power hour, they're just like, is she kidding? A whole hour every morning for myself. Um, And it doesn't have to be, you know, an hour that is dedicated to exercise or reading or meditation. Like if you want to do those things and you are able to do those things, then of course, great. I'd love to hear what you do typically in the first hour of your day. Um, So I am a very early riser, I think, because my children are a bit older now and um, you kind of get trained, don't you, to wake up very early when they're tiny. I had one one of my children was a very, very early riser, so it used to be up at five every day. And I kind of kept that going, so I tend to get up very early, five or six every day. I do go to bed early too. Um, And I just uh, often, depending on how busy I've been, sometimes I don't do anything at all. It's just about Mm. having a quiet home. So occasionally I, I, you know, I do use meditation, I do journal, but I think that when you've got very little children, those things can feel, like you said, so hard to access. Actually, I think for parents, often what they really need is just space and quiet. So for me, it's about having some of that space around that time where I feel like the house is still and I can just be on my own with my thoughts and then I can do whatever I want to do with that time. So maybe I might do a bit of work and sometimes do a bit of exercise, but it's just knowing that I do have that space to myself at the beginning of the day. I'm going to add to that, that it took me a very long time to get there. And there was a very long time where I would wake up early, the house would be sleeping. And then I just hear this like little pitter patter of feet. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And you're like, Oh, I'm going to have company for this hour. But what I've what I've kind of learned to do, I think one of the words that is really helpful for parents to to hear is that sometimes you just need to surrender, you know, yeah. surrender to this as in this moment, this is a need that my child has. I'm not going to have my idealized hour that I really wanted for myself, but how can I bring that into this hour that I have with my child? So that would still be an hour of stillness, quiet, as calm as possible, not always easy when they're toddlers or babies but something where, you know, there wasn't much distraction around. It was just about a slow start to the day. Mm, Yeah, I really like that. And actually just the point you made there around not necessarily saying, well, because the child's awake, all the things that I wanted to do or plan to do, scrap it and it's it's over to them. Because as you said, it can be a blend of bringing them into that and letting letting them know the expectation in that first hour, as you said, might be that, Actually, you have to whisper. You have to use a quiet voice. You have to, other people in the house might still be sleeping. That's something that we talk about in the weekends with my stepchildren and my stepson, because he's youngest, is, yeah, other people might be sleeping. His sister's sleeping. So you have to use a quiet voice. You have to, and it's not the case that just because you're up, you can, yeah, get all your toys out. You can run around. Like, you have to wait. And I think that's also, yeah, again, it's a balance. Some people might laugh at that and be like, oh my gosh, try telling my three year old to use a quiet voice. But if you, I guess, yeah, I don't know, try and, show them that sometimes it's all about them sometimes it's not yes and it's what we're modeling right then because even if they're not using a quiet voice themselves over time if we carry on doing that and I think this is one of those things that can be so hard about parenting right because we might say the same thing 20,000 times (laughs) yes at some point it sticks at some point it sticks and you know that might be that a child is not yet able to to, to do a quiet voice you know they're not able to kind of control their impulses enough to be able to talk softly at some point they will shift they will develop and then and then they are you know it is more possible for them so I think just those kind of repeated things rituals that can feel so important in families that might look different day to day but if you know what you're aiming for and something that feels very simple very achievable 
then that's something that can feel more and more, it can become more achievable as your kids get older. Mm. Well, fascinating stuff, as I said. I knew it was going to be wonderful and I've really, really enjoyed talking to you today. Thank you so much for joining us. No, thank you so much for having me. It was so lovely to hear about your own experiences as well. And the book, Parenting for Humans, is, of course, out now. So, yeah, where can we get the book? Uh, you can get it from all usual bookshops. So um, if you have a look um, on Mammologist on Instagram, I've got all of the links to buy it in my bio. Fab. We'll also put links in the show notes as well. So, again, thank you so much. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in and for listening. As always, I appreciate it. If you've enjoyed this episode, if you know someone who would definitely get value from hearing this conversation then please do share it with them and i'll be back next week with another episode see ya hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.